Hey there, hi there, ho there. Welcome to Fantai, the podcast. (laughs) Okay. The podcast for all those complex and complicated conversations about the gray areas in our lives. I'm entertainment editor and journalist and author, Travel Anderson. And I am picking out my outfit for the war, Jarrett Hill. Coming up, we have a... (laughs) Really interesting. I'm just so anxious about everything happening in the world right now. Coming up on the show, we're going to be talking to Garrett Kennedy, author of the new book, Didn't We Almost Have It All, in defense of Whitney Houston. It's a very interesting take on the life of Whitney Houston. Um, And uh, it's really, really fantastic. Garrett's a friend of the show. And so we'll be talking to him in just a couple of moments. But first, we've hinted at it. Travel just kind of hinted at it as well in, in their intro. Um, we've teased at it, complained about it, and otherwise alluded to it. And now we can finally tell y'all a little something that's happening with uh, the two of us. About six years ago, I started doing these social media posts. I hashtagged as historically black phrases, taking things that black folks say all the time and explaining them like a dictionary would, um, kind of doing it semi-academically, semi-comedically. Um, and the one that I really loved the most was the, the term fuckboy. I described it as a noun. A person, usually male, but not exclusively, who gets ambiguously romantically involved, but is generally inconsiderate of your feelings, behaves in ways that are almost wholly selfish behind the veil of care. Their romantic relationships are intentionally ambiguous for their own gain, often to the others involved pain or peril, likely doesn't treat you the way that you want or deserve to be treated, but may pretend to think they do or are. I then kind of started doing all kinds of these different kind of posts where we were talking about all kinds of different things that Black folks used to say. And then I started kind of playing with the idea of how it could be something a little bit more. And well, now six years later, Travell and I are writing a book and it's called Historically Black Phrases. Uh, It will be in stores next year. We've just announced it on all of our social media today. The wonderful folks over at 10 Speed and Penguin Random House um, have bought it, and you will be able to buy it in stores next year. It's wild that this is happening. Well, you know, this this is where I just hop in and give the disclaimer that the publisher, I'm sure, would like us to give. We are aiming for next year, but, you know, there's been delays with publishing stuff and all of that. What I will say is our deadline is she knocking on the door. that deadline is is steadily approaching. Um, and so uh, we have been working on this for how long have we been working on this? A long, long. time, a long periodically <laughs> time. Exactly. That's a historically black phrase. How you doing? Yes. So historically black <laughs> phrases uh, is going to be in store soon. Travel and I are writing it. We have some more announcements about other things coming up as well. It's a very exciting thing. This is this is a big one. Yes, it's going to be a coffee table moment. It's going to in the in the little announcement that you'll be able to read on social media. We'll post it if you're listening to this full day in the morning. Okay, we ain't post it yet, but we going to. Okay, okay, because you know we on the on the West Coast. But as you'll see in one of the announcements, they say we pitched it kind of like a Black Futures meets Urban Dictionary moment, and so it's going to be highly designed. It's going to be everything from I'm not one of your little friends to do you got McDonald's money. If you if you pick it up, what Wait I'm putting down. Wait a minute, down. that one's right. not in there. Do you um, got McDonald's money? Is not in the list. Okay, well oh, it is now. Okay. We'll look at that. If you all are interested in making submissions, letting us know what you think about the book, you can go to historicallyblackphrases.com right now. You can submit phrases that you think should um, that are obviously historically black phrases, um, and leave your email, and we'll kind of uh, keep you in the loop of when things are happening for pre-ordering the book. Again, it's historicallyblackphrases.com. 
And white people, you can go ahead to that same mm-hmm. link, okay? And you can not don't give us don't Mm-mm. give us no suggestions for historically black phrases. But you can go and sign up and put your email in there so you can be on the list too. Cause we know we know we know y'all out there and you know you gonna want just, a piece I too. Okay. Like we just gonna be that person saying I feel <laughs> some type of way. Don't do that, white people. Don't do that. But you can leave your email address and let us know um, that you're excited about the book. We're all very excited about it. And um, yes, historicallyblackphrases.com. Make sure to sign up and we will keep you posted. We are going to take a quick break, though. When we come back, we are getting into the real real about Whitney Houston with uh, incredible music journalist Garrett Kennedy, friend of the show, is going to be with us next. Don't go anywhere. A lot of investment apps make it easy to start trading, but just because it's easy to do doesn't mean you know what you're doing. I surely don't. Wealthfront makes it easy to invest and easy to grow your savings with a diversified portfolio that balances your other riskier bets. You can start investing in no time with Wealthfront's classic portfolio or make your own with things that you care about, like socially responsible funds, some technology, crypto, trust, or hundreds of other investments. Wealthfront was designed by financial experts to help you turn your good ideas into great investments without the hassle of doing everything yourself. self, okay? Wealthfront is trusted with over $28 billion in assets, helping nearly half a million people build their wealth. You could potentially do the same next. To start building your wealth and get your first $5,000 managed for free for life, go to Wealthfront.com slash Fanti. That's W W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash Fanti to start building your wealth. Go to Wealthfront.com slash Fanti to get started right now. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work. Bitch, ain't that true? A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. I'm now realizing we're talking about platonic. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we go out of our way to treat ourselves well? Well, I will tell you that I go out of my way every weekend. I try, well, I say every weekend and it ends up being like one or two a month, but like I like to have a day that is just mine where I don't have nothing on my calendar, where I'm just able to take care of myself, let myself rest. Maybe it's a therapy day. It depends on what's going on. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It can be more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. I always tell y'all this, but like matching with a therapist and being able to talk to them in under 48 hours is incredible. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fanti listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Fanti. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Fanti. Welcome back, beautiful people. So over the last couple of years, our society and culture has been going through some changes. 
younger generations, I feel, are dragging the shit out of us older folks. Some of the older folks are feeling liberated and taking off their rose-colored glasses. We're just, in my estimation, generally trying to be better, more compassionate people who have deeper, more nuanced conversations, especially when it comes to celebrities. We've seen this happen directly in the ways that our discourse around the likes of Janet Demita Joe Jackson and Britney Jean Spears have shifted. But there are plenty of folks who didn't live long enough to see this change take place. Women and people who we should have and could have been more compassionate towards. One of those being the voice herself, Whitney Elizabeth Houston. Now, we all know the deets of how her life ended, and we all have plenty of thoughts on where to place the blame on Bobby, on her siblings, on Mama Sissy. But maybe we need to, in the words of my grandmother, sweep around our own front door before we sweep around hers. (laughs) There's a new book out there that you all need to buy from your local Black-owned bookstore titled, Didn't We Almost Have It All? In Defense of Whitney Houston. It's written by friend of the pod, Garrett Kennedy, who is here with us to talk about it and the duality of Whitney Houston as both a woman in the spotlight and someone who often had to hide who she was. Welcome back to Fanti, Garrick. It's so good to be back. Hello, friends. I, what an <laughs> intro. I mean, you got to come back. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what are we talking about, right? A sensational <laughs> introduction. <laughs> I do my best. I do my best. Thank you so much. <laughs> I felt that about halfway through. I felt it. It was. It was giving. It was making. You said me very I feel weird. my help coming. Hey, yeah. You know? <laughs> okay. All right. So before we get into the book, everybody obviously loves Whitney. But to set the stage for our convo in the book, you talk about a lot of different, you know, iconic performances that folks have of of Whitney, right? Yeah. So we're going to start by sharing our favorite performances of Whitney. Jared has oh, yes. chosen one. I have chosen one. And I just oh, want to get your, your thoughts, your feedback, because I assume you've seen them because of the extensive research <laughs> that you've done. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so Jared is going to start first. I would actually live for Garrick to be like, I've actually never seen any of these iconic performances. That wasn't. I don't know. I know. I didn't. I didn't watch any of it. No. Yeah. Right. All, none of it. Like, I'm actually not even that familiar with her. Um, <laughs> so my favorite Whitney performance that I always go back to and like look up when I want to hear her voice comes from a performance on the Arsenio Hall show. She's performing All the Man I Need. There's a great little intro on the video, if you find the right one, where, you know, Arsenio is going and talking to her through the curtain, and she's like, I'm ready, baby! And, like, everyone's having a good time with it. The curtain comes up. She begins singing. This is, like, my favorite little little bit of the performance. Uh, take a listen. And just like the music of that era, we have a wonderful saxophone solo that follows. 
because uh, you had to have a saxophone solo back then. Um, I believe it was in the contract. Um, but I just love this <laughs> performance. I love her. Just the vocal is amazing. She's missing an earring, because, and I don't know why. Uh, she's got this beautiful dress on. Like, it's just, it's one of my favorite Whitney performances of all time. Thoughts, Garrick. Are you familiar with that performance? Does it resonate with you in the same way it resonates with Jared? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's such a reminder of how gifted she was as a vocalist in the ways in which we never saw her sing the song the same way ever. And the ways in which she always had so much fun when she was on set, because that's when you really got to see, like, oh, she is, she's a vocalist. You know what I mean? In all capital letters, right? I mean, this is this is a vocalist. This is somebody who, you know, yes, she is going to have an incredible time in the studio recording these records. Half the time she's singing it in one take and that's it. Because what she's really waiting for is she's waiting for that moment to be on the stage and to sing, you know, live to people and to share her gift in that way. And, you know, another thing, though, when I think about moments like Arsenio, when I think about moments like, I don't know which one you've picked, Travell, but there are certain performances when I see them, when I remember them, when I think of them, where it's such a reminder of how she was ours always. And we didn't always respect that. We question it so much. But she showed us from the beginning, like how she was always ours, how she was always one of us, how she usually, and not not that she changed herself, but she sang down in a different kind of way when she was on our stages. You know what I mean? Like that is why when we think of some of these moments with her, and we, you know, when we celebrate her, I, I, it doesn't it doesn't get lost on me that it's usually something rooted in like our culture. It's an Arsenio Hall, it's a BET, it's her with Oprah. You know, these moments that we think of her, her and Mary J. Blige on Divas Live, you know what I mean? There's these moments where it was like, she was with us, oh my God, I think of her and Cece. Um, you know, one is where it's just these performances where it's like, she was always ours, always. I love that you say that because like uh, the live performance, I'm a person who like always prefers a live album. Give me the yes. live performance. I want to hear the instruments. I want to hear all of the ways that we're doing it differently for the live performance. And I think that's actually what I really love about this one. Like it's my favorite arrangement of all the things mm-hmm. that that I love about Whitney and this this song. Travel, what's yours? Well, so speaking of fabulous performances rooted in the culture, the year is 2011. It is the BET celebration of gospel. Okay. Okay. A one miss let God be true quickly is singing, I look to you. <laughs> and then she stops singing and behind her, a screen raises. I just want to be clear. We don't use her name at all anymore, right? Who? Okay. Got it. Got it. Let God be true quickly. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm just... I just want to be anyway, clear on so what the rules screen, are. A screen raises behind her. Mm. And you hear the voice. Was about to lose my breath. Had no one fighting Now, that is my favorite. That is my fa- absolute favorite Whitney Houston song of all mm. of them. That's such but, you know, a little choice. It is a little, an interesting you know, choice. You, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a little church. Well, I've always 
had it in a church context, like in a Christ right. worship context, yes. at any time that I've heard it. And so it I, it just does something to me. That whole album okay. does something to me. But this was another example of what you're saying, right? Just in terms of like, Whitney, Whitney was ours. I, I, I think your point, though, I think what's great about it is this album is so underappreciated. I look to you. Yes. Just so underappreciated. I recently listened to it uh, in the last year or so, and I was like, this album is really good. Like, it's, it's million good. I mean, dollar there was bill? So much. Are you kidding me? Yeah, but instead we were focused on, because she hit the notes, and we were focused on oh, the voice wasn't the same. And we were focused on, oh, she doesn't have a huge hit. And we were focused on, oh, where are the big ballads? And she can't do the big ballads anymore. So she has to like stay in this pocket. Even though the thing about that album, you know, her final album that's so beautiful to me is for so long, we always criticize this woman of like, show us who you are. You're not telling us enough in in this music. You are just an empty vessel and you're just singing these records. And what we love about that album so much is you hear all of the pain, all of the life she's lived in her voice, Mm -hmm. that maturity that's in there where, yes, it's a lower register, but that is where you get that good, good, right? You know what I mean? That we always are like, when we think of soul singers really singing, that's where, that's where that lies. And so I always thought it was just so interesting that because she was regarded in this particular way, that when we had a moment like the I Look To You album or the Just Whitney album, you know, frankly, if we're being honest, because her voice had shifted, you know, years prior to I Look To You, but she was getting some of her power back and that became the talking point, as opposed to sitting and being like, well, let's celebrate the voice that we do have and sort of the story that she's telling through her voice when you get a record like I Look To You, which then does have all of that church in it. But also at the same time, when you get a record like, you know, Million Dollar Bill or Call You Tonight, and you can see her in her pocket as like just straight up R&B in a particular kind of way where it's like, this, I mean, the album is a groove. You know, yes, I can do without R. Kelly Records. You know, I can do without Akon. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I can I enjoy it because she was doing contemporary R&B. And that's where we were at the time. And so I loved, I loved, you know, I love that you picked that. Because, you know, I think so much that era is really only remembered for what she was unable to do with her voice. Which brings me to the book. That's what you say in the book, right? I I find the book to be kind of a recontextualizing of what we understood or think we understood about Whitney, what she was, the the burdens that she was shouldering. And I'm going to first start off by asking you a question that I know you've answered probably like 10 times, but... You know, the book is not, it's not like this seedy tell-all type moment. It's actually like super caring and soft in its approach of of how it deals with Whitney and, and the entire journey. But the subtitle, In Defense of Whitney Houston, why did you feel like Whitney needed some defending? I think for several reasons. I think one, you know, collectively... You know, when I started this book, we didn't have Framing Britney Spears. We didn't have this moment that we were having with Janet Jackson. We didn't have um, this moment that we are experiencing right now, which is, you know, as you said earlier, where we really are taking stock of the ways that we showed up with celebrities, the way that we treated them when we saw them the first time around, the ways in which we 
projected our own expectations, our own shame, our own judgment on, you know, these people because we believe that since they gave us, you know, their art that they owed us all parts of them. And that was the era that we were in, you know, and and I think it's easy to forget that that is the era that we used to be because in some ways, a lot of the treatment that she received would be completely unacceptable today. But I think it's important when we are having a conversation about Whitney that we have those conversations because you have to, right? So much of her story was how we saw her. It was how we talked about her. It was how we thought about her. It was how we critiqued her then, but it was also how we started to think about her after she was gone. Oh, this cautionary tale. Oh my God, you know, we knew this day was going to come. Oh my God, it's just so tragic. It's just so tragic. It's just so tragic. We did this 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 arc around her tragedies. And then we also, when we talk about her triumphs, we tend to really only wrap that conversation around you know, the bodyguard and I will always love you and also the Star Spangled Banner. These two sensational moments, obviously, in her career, along with the records that she broke. But what we don't do is we don't have a conversation around the totality of who she was because we were still trying to figure out so much about who she was. So I knew that the book had to be a defense because, frankly, when people think about Whitney Houston and a book, they automatically go, to, ooh, okay, well, this is about to be T-Porch, this is about to be some scandal, because that's what we have been so programmed into thinking with her. And so you have to talk about, obviously, our role in that, but also the media's role in that as well, because it wasn't something where it was just, we all just sat around and like had this feeling of her. No, it was it was a narrative that trickled through Black radio, but also white mainstream press, all of us. You know, and that was the era in which she came from. You know, so much of writing about Whitney and talking about Whitney is reminding us all that she was a victim of circumstance. The time that we were in, we were not having these conversations around queer people. We were not having these conversations around people with addiction. We were not having these conversations around, you know, when we saw Black celebrities, what it took for them to get to the top of the mountain, you know, in the era of which all of this was happening. We don't have those conversations because we were in the moment of, seeing it happen. But I think the thing with distance is when you talk about someone like this, you could either have a conversation of, well, this is the story and we all know the ending and like, it's such a shame, but like, it would be great if we now knew like where her and Bobby started getting high or what was the first place like her and Robin like made out of all these other things that are not important. They just are not. Nothing, the parts of her that were tragedy has become so much of the story is not that unique. It is, like many people, someone who got high, someone who had an experience with someone of the same sex that was their friend. These things that are very common in our understanding of how humans work, but we only got there recently because of all the lessons we had to learn, right? So I wanted to have a book that was a reflection of all of that, but also a reminder of how far we've come. And so that's why, yes, it needs to be a defense in a sense, because you're talking about somebody who so much of us, so many of us only think of her in this really flat way, which is she was a sensational voice that destroyed herself because of an addiction in her marriage to Bobby Brown. That's how so many people just see her and they don't see anything beyond that. They don't allow themselves to see anything beyond that. So it's interesting to me that you're talking about the time that all of these things happened in. And you have a chapter in the book called My Lonely Heart Calls on Sex, Desire, and Sexuality. And, you know, there's been all of the conversation about Whitney and queerness and Robin and all of that. And it's it, 
people have harped on it ad nauseum at this point, right? Whitney coming from the Black church and that being a challenge for her being queer, openly queer, is something that has always made sense to me and I've always gotten that. And like, we see the Sissy Houston interview with Oprah where she's very clearly not okay with homosexuality, right? But I think what you did so beautifully in the book was juxtapose it in a way that I've not seen it put before. And I don't know how I've not seen it, but this way. You talk about Whitney's relationship with Robin in the context of that time when like the AIDS epidemic is is happening, right? And all of the conversation mm-hmm. around being queer is AIDS, 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 right? Um, anything Death. queer is yes. like the gay cancer. And yeah. but also even talking about the drugs in the context of uh in those in the early days of Whitney's career, coming at a time when we were having the war on drugs right? And dare and all of those kinds of things. And I've not heard it put that way. And I just thought that was a really, really beautiful way to put it, to to give it context that I don't think that I've seen it put in before. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, You know, I mean, one of the things that was really clear to me as I was, you know, working on this was, you know, shame really was sort of a main character in the story, when we talk about shame, when we talk about our understanding of shame, it is so much rooted in what a person carries, but not what we project. Mm. And I believe when we talk about, especially around sexuality, and that's why it was so important for, for me to have this conversation, because I don't think people really understood the level of harm that these conversations was introducing to queer communities in the 80s where there is there is a and you know and, and obviously we're in a time right now where there's lots of people who are looking at you know what's happening with covid and being like oh god this this reminds me of when and it's like i understand you saying that because we're now kind of doing that work around what that level of harm introduced to our communities where you actually have people not only believing that if you are in any level of a same-sex relationship, you are going to get a disease and die. And you deserve it. So because this is something that is being openly promoted, right? That's why I talk about it. And that's why I make sure I use word because I want people to really understand this when they read this. State-sanctioned violence. Like, this is what this is. This is how it was talked about. This is how it was treated. This is how our communities were forced into hiding in a particular kind of way. And whereas there is no way in which, even if you took the church off the table, which I get access all the time, oh, well, if Whitney wasn't in the, in the deep of the church, would it have been different? I don't believe so. Because look at how we were talking about queer people in that time. And if you don't even have a language around it, you just knew, oh, this is my homegirl. I have some feelings. We've we've tried something. We've experimented the same way many of us have experimented, you know, as we are growing up. Um, I can't think of a world in which it would have been something different because then you're looking at the news and you're basically seeing this coverage nonstop because we have to remember it was nonstop. Right. So it created this fear and it led to this sort of thing that we saw with both, you know, and I think about this with, you know, with drugs as well, where we weren't really talking about harm reduction in any real way. We weren't having real conversations around, well, this is like how to practice safe sex. Like that, that we weren't there yet. We got there, but we weren't there yet. It was, if you lay with a person of the same sex, you are going to get AIDS and you were going to die. Like that was just the end of it. And you deserve it and God wants it that way. And you deserved it and God wanted it that way. And I think of just, you know, 
the level of shame, right, that that is rooted in, that just that thought. And of course, you know, this is, we are a nation where we are very sexually repressed anyways. So any conversation around it is always met with this very weird fascination, but also obsession and outrage all at once, especially with queer folks, where it's like, you all demand to know how we have sex. You want to police how we have sex and you want to shame us for how we have sex. But then you want to constantly ask us, well, then who you having sex with? Mm-hmm. And who you doing it with? And, and why are y'all doing it? And how does it work exactly? You know, so <laughs> it's just this, it's this way, it's this way that it is, again, it's so rooted in this idea of projecting shame. And I wanted to really write to that because I think it's important since we've had this distance, but also not really, because look at where some of these conversations still remain within our community, which is why, you know, so much of this book is me writing directly to Black people when I have to, but also to the world when I need to as well, Mm -hmm. because there's two conversations that you have to hold with a lot of this stuff. And with Whitney, that was sort of the the, the tightrope that she walked on. So much of this was these two worlds that she was trying to balance to the point where this woman is gone and oprah has to ask her mother well would you have cared and she is gone dead and you see her mom say absolutely you know what i mean where of course what did what did we believe you know but i also did not have to then write the fact that you know at the same time that was the only care that she received sissy owns up to that in her second book where she writes about how robin was the one who came to her and mentioned that there was an issue but also Sissy here written a book in the late 80s, in the late 90s, and Robin's not mentioned. None of this stuff is mentioned because we were still able to cover it up. But now we can't. So now we kind of have to do this other work, which is, uh-oh, we did kind of have a failure to this person because we were too busy judging them. And it's just what it is. Over the last couple of years, I've been watching more and more things that are like able to contextualize things in a way that's really important. OJ, Made in America, I think, does a really beautiful job of contextualizing OJ Simpson in that time. Uh, Britney Spears and the documentaries we've seen about her and the conservatorship has done a really, really great job. And I think in this book, you've done a really, really great job because I think that people can reduce Whitney down to I will always love you, you know, being Bobby Brown moments, you know, some drug stuff, you know what I mean? And I think that this this book, and when I was in that chapter, I was just like, wow, I didn't think about how we were talking about queerness at the time when Whitney Houston, you know, hit the scene, how we were talking about drug use at that time. And I, I think it, it just did a really, really, you did a really, really beautiful job of that. Oh, thank you so much. So, you know, I'm a young whippersnapper, okay? Okay, well, let me stop you right there. Because just... <laughs> Five minutes ago, you were quoting the old folks real easy. Right. Just right off, flipping off the top. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, like, I loved some of the context that you brought in in terms of, like, the, the parts where you're talking to Black folks and you're, like, reminding mm-hmm. Black folks that y'all wasn't really banging with her like that. For real, for yeah. real. Like, we all look at her as, like, an icon, a Black icon now. But... You know, was it Al Sharpton out here calling her Whitey or something? You know, White man, I mean. yeah. so like it, I I was not aware of like how deep kind of that went. And then you brought in the context of like this image that Clive, you know, had and was built, wanted to build and how that, you know, contributed to the anti-blackness and all of that other stuff. Before you go to that question, though, I think even in this book, you do a really beautiful job of like, bringing in how colorism, 
you know, factored into that, right? How yeah. her having to like portray an image that was very distinctly different than where she came from. I just thought that all of that context like paints this picture of like more of the reality of what it was like to be Whitney Houston as opposed to like the little bits of things that we, you know, kind of stick to. But go ahead, Trevor. Well, I was going to ask, what do you think it was or is about this moment now in our culture that makes it like ripe for us to be reconsidering all of these folks in in the way that you do in this book with Whitney, the Britney we talked about, yeah, uh, Janet, um, et cetera. I feel like there's so much recontextualizing happening now, and I'm wondering what you think is like the root cause of that. I think I think a big I think a big piece of that puzzle is what we're doing right now. I am a Black queer man talking to two Black queer folks on a platform that anyone in any piece of the world can listen to. And to understand how how important that is, you have to think about what Whitney had when she was around. You were limited to... One of three avenues, you could meet with a print reporter who, for the most part, was going to be a white a white man. Mm-hmm. You could go talk to somebody on TV, for the most part, was probably going to be white. You did have, you had your Arsenio, you had a couple, you, Donnie Simpson, you had a couple of those moments. Other than that, the access that we as Black folks had to Whitney was through Black radio. So when I was a kid growing up, that is where I learned that there was an issue with Whitney. Because you weren't seeing that. Kurt, you know, Kurt Loder and MTV, yeah, they might not have been playing her at the beginning, but once they started playing her and it was, you know, she was Whitney Houston, there was none of this other conversation happening. I had to see that from Black radio hosts talking, you know what I mean? And, and, and doing, and doing what, this is this is part of what it is. That was the culture, right? They weren't doing, there was things wrong about what they were saying, you know, in terms yeah. of their tone of what they were saying, but what they were actually doing, that was how it moved, right? So when you have these very limited gatekeeping i don't like using that word because you know i think people think about that word and they feel like it removes them from a level of access which was true for a very long time but that's no longer true right any one of us with something to say can have a place to say it you know and i'm and and the three of us we've all been in these newsrooms where you might not get to say the thing somebody else can say the thing and they're probably not going to look like you but they get to speak about your culture And when you then think of a conversation around Whitney, where you then had white writers, and I wanted to speak to this, which is one of the chapters, you know, is, is written, is named after, you know, these three words that a white man used when writing about, you know, Whitney's music. But just the fact that those were the ones who were in charge of the narrative, right? So you saw this, you saw this young, this young black woman who was constantly told to defend herself against things that, for the most part, other people were saying about her, but because they were the gatekeepers, that was what mattered. It was they, the critics were saying it, so that's what mattered. The radio hosts were saying it, so that's what mattered. The print reporters were saying it, so that's what mattered. We're in a different space now, somewhat because we've lost so many people, and we've had to do that moment of being like, oh well, 
maybe we're all, maybe we've all been the asshole here. You know what I mean? Like maybe it's, maybe it's been us this whole time, but part of, part of us getting to that place of maybe we are all the asshole is many of us being like, yes, we were the ones. And I want to talk about why that was bad. I want to talk about why that was not right. I want to talk about why that was harmful. And you now are getting this discourse through so many people now versus, you know, your 10 people who were kind of in charge of the conversation for a small amount of time. 25 years ago, you know, and I think that's such a big part of where of what we're watching right now. Britney Spears, for instance, she only felt that she had a voice because she was looking at all of us online, encouraging her to do so and telling her we've done the work, mama. We've read these contracts. It's funky. What they saying is is not, I don't know. You might want to check, sis. And her feeling encouraged to do it. The same way that Janet Jackson had to then tell us, well, I talked to Justin and it's fine. So can y'all ease up? Because y'all, y'all on his neck Listen. every Super Bowl. And I appreciate it. But if you could just back up. But that's because we've arrived to a different place where there is more of us and we are louder and we are able to share how we feel. But also, you know, it's not... It's not the same as, you know, when I was when I first started in newsrooms and it was like right around, you know, like the blog era was getting really popping. And it was like, okay now you have a Perez Hilton. You have some of these you you have some of these folks who have taken this to a different direction, whether or not you agree with the direction it went. That's where we all went. You know what I mean? We we went we followed them because there was an appetite for us to do it, because now it moved from, you know, the supermarket tabloid to now it's on your phone. I can get this tea all day long. I can talk about these people all day long. So when you think of, you know, Stan, Twitter and all this stuff, it all plays into this moment that we've arrived to because now there's more voices adding to the conversation. You talk about that in the book, how, you know, back in the day when Whitney was, even up until Whitney passed away, like celebrities didn't have the agency that they have now in being able to get on Twitter and say like, that thing is not true or get on Instagram and make an announcement or, you know, use their Facebook page to be able to, you know, promote something that they're doing, that they had to go to the journalists, right? They had to go on television. They had to be in an interview. And as as I was hearing you talk about that, I thought that was interesting because I thought like, but that's also a danger, right? In that same chapter, you talk about Katie Couric asking her about, you know, her queerness. And it's like, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to go talk to a journalist either to try and clear something up because they're going to ask follow-up questions. And goddamn it, Twitter right. doesn't let you do that. So, I, yeah. <laughs> right. So when the listeners hear this, Jared and I will have announced that we are co-writing a book together. Oh. Ah. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you some, like, book writing questions because, okay. listen, it's a struggle over here, okay? Yes. Uh, it, we also... <laughs> Jared and I are co-writing a book together, and then I have mm-hmm. a book, and then Jared has his own book as well at the same yeah. damn time, because we fool. At the same time. I was at your book launch at the Reparations Club. Shout out to the Reparations Club. I feel like you said something that inspired this question. So, like, I'm interested in knowing, like, what did you initially pitch mm. versus mm. what did you initially write versus what we actually got? in the final book. Mm, like, I'm interested mm-hmm. in knowing those stages because I done changed my book like four times. Yes. I was going to say, Travel done um, changed the name of the book, the trajectory of the book. The, the name, whole- <laughs> yes, all of it. The name going to change again. Know that. Listen. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it started with, I was really fascinated and really, really, really compelled by 
the last 10 years of her life when she wasn't, you know, in the spotlight as much and just like her being really focused on her wellness, being focused on being a mom, but also sort of this idea of like, because she was Whitney Houston, we didn't even, we didn't give her that level of peace. Like it just was not going to actually happen. So when I started working on that one, I really quickly arrived to a place of, oh, I'm going to have a book that I don't want to read. Not that I think it's a book that shouldn't exist, but it's, to me, it wasn't the conversation that was important because I thought the conversation that was then impo- was important was, you know, we had seen, you know, Robin's book and it really, and the documentary, the last documentary that the estate has sanctioned. And it really kind of filled in these gaps in some ways where like these parts of the stories that we were hoping to have we now had them, even if we didn't like it, even if we didn't agree with it, we now had it. So it allowed us to start to kind of have a different conversation. And at least for me, as somebody who at that point was thinking about her a lot, I started to be like, why am I not writing about the ways in which I think about her and sort of like what I think is really compelling around this story of this person that we missed the first time around because we were judging them, because we had these expectations, because like, you know, we wanted her to be able to sing, you know, I will always love you the same way that she sang in 92. Like all these things I started to think about. And I was just like, this is now something else. Even as I was writing, it was something else. It was feeling like something else. Um, So I had done two or three uh, of the chapters before I just told my editor, I was like, hey, this is something else now. And I know that sounds crazy, but let's talk about it. And, you know, we we did. And, you know, the thing about it that was so rewarding was the manuscript that was turned in is not that radically different from what is on shelves right now. It was just the edit process. And, and so much of it was because I was so certain I was certain that these were the themes I wanted to cover. This is how I wanted to cover it. You know, I had my own anxiety around would people get it, but I was also just like, well, part of how I've written this is I'm holding your hand through it. So even if you don't get it, you at least can see this is what a person is doing. And I'm going to explain to you that this is why I'm doing it. But of course, in the end, it makes it complicated when you start, you know, trying to like talk about it. And then, you know, people are like, okay, yeah. So this, so tell me about this biography. And it's like, well, it's not but it's this and it's hard when it's somebody who doesn't who doesn't have this and the other part about it too is our culture we don't have a lot of this we don't we don't get the books of cultural criticism written about us by us we have other people telling us you know what what we meant and what we did but we don't it's not it's never us and definitely never with you know women who did pop music and R&B music we get a bunch of it for hip hop and nothing else. And and while I love, you know, the fact that hip hop has gotten it to be this global thing to where people want to study it in this way, why are we not doing that with R&B? And, and, and why are we not doing that with our Black women who did R&B and our Black women who did pop music? And that's what I wanted to introduce, you know, with this book. Such an interesting take on Whitney Houston that I think everybody should uh, go out and get. Make sure that you check out Garrett Kennedy's new book, Didn't We Almost Have It All in Defense of Whitney Houston is available wherever you get your books. Please try to buy it at a Black bookstore if you can. We want to hear from y'all, though. Hit us up on social media using the hashtag FantiFam. We're on Twitter and Instagram at FantiPodcast. Coming up, why y'all hate us so much and listener feedback and our dishonorable mentions. Fanti's coming right back. 
Hi, I'm Janet Varney, and just like you, I survived high school. And we're not alone. On my podcast, The JV Club, I invite some of my friends to share the highs and lows of their teen years, like moments with Aisha Tyler. But when you're a kid, the stakes are just pretty low. Go to school, try not to get in trouble, get laid. Jamila Jamil. I watched television probably every waking hour during that time and I was shit-faced on medicine. And Dave Holmes. We talked and talked and then everybody left. It was just us two and I was like, I love you. Learn how you too can be a functioning adult after the drama and heartbreak of high school. Every week on the JV Club with Janet Varney. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a judgment-free show. We have wasted this world. Our magic put a storm in the sky that has rendered the surface of our planet uninhabitable. But beneath the surface, well, that's another story entirely. In a city built leagues below the apocalypse, survivors of the storm forge paths through a strange new world. Some seek salvation for their homeland above. Others seek to chart the vast undersea expanse outside the city's walls. And others still seek, what else? Fortune and glory. Dive into the Ether Sea, the latest campaign from the Adventure Zone, every other Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back, beautiful people. Now it's time for our listener feedback segment where you tell us stuff about how wondrousness or foolishnessness we are. So we've got a quick message here from Michaela, ZZ pronouns. And Michaela says, Travel is my favorite. Heart emoji. To which I responded, This is definitely going in the show. This. <laughs> I love, I love, I don't think we've ever gotten a four word email before. Like, it was just like, Travel's my fave. I live. I'm in. <laughs> and it's because you told people to email us that you were their favorite. Did I see that? And, you know, this... That sounds like some yes, shit I would do. That's why, that's why Michaela said it. Oh, I thought Michaela liked it, you. A, so, yes. all right. Fine. Wow. And also, it was favorite with the you. So, shout out to you. All right. It's favorite. <laughs> um, and then we got another email from Jari. I believe that's how I say your name. This is in response to the astrology episode. They say, I'm a new listener and loving everything. Where have I been? Anyway, the latest episode on astrology was fun, and I'm glad that you all handled it because I've been looking for a little astrology pushback amidst a culture that's mad for planets. I would only add that getting into astrology too early early and as a person who deals with mood disorders can be dangerous. My mother had my chart read when I was a baby in the 80s. She recorded Let me it stop on a you. cassette which The I way you said have. in the 80s was a little rude. What year were you born? I was born in 1991. I uh, yeah, the way you said in the 80s it was a little aggressive and I did it's not written okay. that way. I just want to point it, that first out. Of all, it, first I, of all, first of all, that's your offense. own stuff. I took a That's your own stuff. It's fine. It's fine. It's that's fine. That's your own stuff. I'm dealing you, with you it. can use the better help code it, that we give them wow, in the ad segment wow. and call somebody up. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I just read it how I feel like it's written because there's dot dot dots on either side. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead on. Go ahead on and read it. Jari says she recorded it on a cassette, which I still have along with the dot matrix printout of my chart. 
I have only begun to get my depression and anxiety under control before I knew what those things were or that they were professionals trained to help me manage them. I had astrology and obsessively, quote, looked to the stars to understand what was wrong with me. I strained to see the curse or the crookedness in the chart. Honey, I was deranged. I High functioning, deranged, but messed up nonetheless. I am anti. Let astrology be a parlor game. It cannot tell you who you are or can become. Interesting thoughts. <laughs> I I'm literally like dot matrix. What is dot? Matrix? Really? Is dot matrix the printer that had like the tear off things on the side? Is that what that is? What? Why are you looking at me like that? I'm serious. Thank you, Jari, for your email. No, I really appreciate I, you. I literally was like, um, I need to Google dot matrix because I wasn't a hundred percent. I think that is what a dot matrix is. Well, I'm not about to show my age. Okay. Listen, I, I, okay. Oh, to be clear, I know what the dot matrix is. But, so what is it? Because I'm a, I'm a seasoned girl. Okay. okay. You know what? I, it's now time for our dishonorable mentions. Number one, I want to give a shout out. I'm totally stealing this from you, Travel, because I want to say it before you do. Sherry Shepard. <laughs> this is colorism at play what? right here on, on the Fantai Airway. Listen, um, I'm going to take this from a dark skinned person and use it as my own. <laughs> Uh, Sherry Shepard. I've been sick for years. Like, I'm rooting for Sherry Shepard. She was guest hosting the last time Wendy was out for a bit of time. So excited for Sherry to be uh, getting a new show. For those of you that are not familiar, Wendy Williams has obviously been on. Uh, she has not returned to her show this season uh, with health issues. I believe we've talked about that a couple of times here. Uh, Sherry is going to be taking over the show. It will then, essentially, the Wendy Williams show is being canceled and the new show will be called Sherry. That will be taking over uh, in its place on Fox stations around the country and just very excited for Sherry. I don't know anybody that deserves it more. Like, she's been killing it in the ratings. She's been saying how badly she's wanted this for so long. And so I'm just really, really um, happy and excited for her. So congratulations to Sherry Shepard. I also want to give a shout out to the queer folks of the world. Apparently, According to a new piece in the Washington Post, the number of people that identify as LGBTQ is the highest it's ever been. It's a record number. And they say that Gen Z is driving that increase. I will say that I don't know that there are more queer people than there have ever been, as we just had this conversation about Whitney Houston, right? I think there are more people who feel comfortable addressing it or feel comfortable with the language or, or are familiar with who have the language. language. Who yeah. have the language, exactly. So um, I just want to shout out to all the, the queer Gen Zers that are out there and everybody else that is identifying as queer or trans or all of the myriad different things that fall under that enormous, very colorful umbrella. So that was just a really interesting piece of information. Travel. Well, I was about to go um, down a very long list of, you know, terms that have historically been used both within community and outside of community um, that we are no longer supposed to say. Like, um, but I won't do oh, that. Never mind. Okay. Yes. Like that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and the other ones as well. But shout oh, the out one to y'all. Like, oh, OK. Go ahead. Jared, cut it out. <laughs> OK. So, yes. Um, a plus one to Sherry Shepard. Love her. I also want to give a shout out for a show that I'm looking forward to checking out. It's this show that Lizzo has on, will have coming out on Amazon Prime in which she's searching for, you know, big girl dancers. Um, and I am in, it's like a, you know, a competition show. Um, it's a unscripted is what they call it. And the name of the show 
which I am currently stretching because I, I was going to say, are we going to act up. like you're not just looking it up right now? The name of the show is the not, name of the show is called Big Girls. Is it? It's Big Girls with three R's and no I, according to the folks over at Rolling Stone. Okay, good. Okay, because this this variety ain't said nothing about the name of the show and this link. I yes, just, the unscripted Prime on. Video series will premiere on March 25th. You want me to just take this one from you too? No, I don't. Uh. <laughs> the disrespect. But yes, it's called Big Girls, and I'm looking forward to it because y'all, I done told y'all on last episode, or you know, one of the other episodes, I love my girls, BBW. And I also know one of the producers, Micaiah Green, I believe is her last name, is one of the producers. Shout out to her. Love her. We'll be checking that out. And then last but not least, I want to give an honorable mention to a name that we say often in our credits every single week. The one and only Corice, that's C-O-R dot E-C-E, has a new single out called Possibly Impossible featuring Dave Giles II that you should all check out. Here's a quick listen. Okay, if you're going to start singing it, we're going to have to stop. Okay, our thanks to Carice. Uh, <laughs> congratulations, Carice, on your new song. Make sure you go check it out. Uh, we have the link to the YouTube uh, to the YouTube in our episode description. Okay, so now it is time for... Black history is happening every day. Yes, yes, yes. As you all know, black history is happening every single day in these streets here, okay, over on the Fanti. And as this month ends, we wanted to leave you and keep it in the Whitney theme of the episode. We want to leave you with some reflections that a one Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown once had. This comes from an interview that they did with MTV News back in the day. Take a listen. It's February. It's Black History yeah. Month. What does that mean to you guys? Excuse me? Black History Month. We need a longer month. Black History Month? We, we need like a whole be, year. We, we need a, a longer month. Black History month. Year. How about Black History Year yeah. for one year? Yeah. And, and, Out of every two years. Where do you, one year. Black History Year. All right. All right. All right. Boom. Where do you think the kids are getting their black history now? Did you get it in school? Did you get it in school? No, I didn't get it in I didn't I get it in my school. I had to I was taught it by my parents and my grandmother. And people who really knew about black I'm the history. madman. What are you saying? Where'd you get your black history bottle? Say good night. Good night. Peace. Good night. See you later. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Guys. It was taught to me by my parents and my grandmother. <laughs> I just, you know, that was, uh, I just, I, I love the authenticity dripping from that clip in particular in terms of the, the their relationship, in terms of, of, we need a whole year. Can you imagine what white people would have done during the Trump era if we had Black History Year? Like, <laughs> oh my God. 
Just no way. <laughs> um, before we go, we want to tell you about a couple things. One, our new book is going to be in stores. Uh, make sure you go to historicallyblackphrases.com to check out um, how you can uh, get on the mailing list for more information about the book and also submit um, phrases that you think should go into the book. Um, and then also, if you're listening to the show on the day that it comes out on Thursday... You can join us tomorrow for Fanti Fridays Live. It's our second installment. It's going to be on Friday, February 25th at noon Pacific time. A couple of reminders. You must be a member uh, of the Fanti fam over um, on MaximumFun.org slash join. You can uh, select Fanti to become a member. Again, that's going to be tomorrow, Friday, February 25th at noon. And I, I want to say really quickly, somebody emailed us, asked, you know, they made us a, a side comment. They were like, where's your Patreon? And I want to let you know, just in case you don't remember, the Maximum Fund Network is a member-supported met, uh, network. And so instead of having a, a Patreon like some of the other shows, if you become a member of the Maximum Fund family, that is how you can financially contribute to all of this wondrousness that we give you every week. And the way you do that is by going to MaximumFun.org slash join and you select Fanti and you can do $5, you can do $10, you can do $100 million a month. We'll take it all. I mean, I could also just send you my cash up information if you're really interested in giving us money. <laughs> if this conversation piqued your interest and you want just a little bit more of this here, good, good. Go ahead on and check out other episodes that have a related conversation. Episode 31 actually also featured Garrett Kennedy. Uh, it was called White Singers, Black Voices. It's a conversation where we are talking about, you know, the white folks that sound real black, almost kind of like he was talking about Mariah and Whitney and how they were writing about them. Um, we thank you so much for listening. You can, um, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we ask that you leave us a five-star rating and a review. Let us know what you think about the show. If you have a comment or a suggestion about this week's show, we're at Fanti Podcast. We're at Fanti Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Use the hashtag FantiFam uh, so we can jump in and see all of your comments. Lastly, you can send us an email, Fanti at MaximumFun.org. Shout out to those of you in South Africa that actually emailed me. Um, I really appreciate it. I'll see y'all a little bit later this year. Amen. And as always, you can become a member of the Fanti Fam and the Maximum Fun family by joining at MaximumFun.org slash join. Our music is brought to you as always by the one and only Corice. That's C-O-R dot E-C-E. Please check out his new single, Possibly Impossible. Wherever you wherever you stream Slayworthy audio, our graphics are brought to you by Ashley Wynn and the folks over at Moonhouse Creative. Our producer is Laura Swisher. <laughs> and our editor is Will Hagel. <laughs> this is a production of Maximum Fun. Really? I was seeing if you were paying attention. <laughs>